Welcome to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi and Company. Welcome to another Altamimi COP28 podcast. My name is Francis Patelong. I'm a senior counsel and a mediator in the Riyadh office of Altamimi. We're joined today by Becky Anderson. Becky is at the forefront, I would say, of ESG developments in the law. She trained at the City of London law firm before joining a large international company on qualification. She's worked as a senior in-house lawyer for many years before becoming head of engagement at the Chancery Lane Project, which is something we're going to talk about a lot more during the course of this podcast. And she's devoting her energy now to climate contracting. She's also one of the hosts on Thomson Reuters' excellent programme, The Hearing. So that's the scene set for today. So, Becky, we're going to talk about the Chancery Lane Project today, which is probably the most exciting thing to emerge from the pandemic, in my view. Um, it's a very, very collaborative, very, very positive step on the road towards achieving net zero. But I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and maybe we should start for, for people listening by explaining what actually climate contracting comprises. Oh, well, thank you so much for that introduction. And I love starting with talking about climate contracting. And I think it's actually a much more simple idea than most people realise. When you first think about the law and climate, your brain tends to go in one of two directions. Regulation, so states putting laws in place, or it goes in the direction of litigation. There have been some very high profile litigation cases around climate contracting, um, particularly in Europe. But actually, I think that this covers a tiny fraction of what the legal profession and what the law can do in relation to climate. And that's where we come to climate contracting, because at the moment, all of the targets that companies have set, all of the net zero targets that you mentioned at the top of the conversation there, they're all voluntary. They're all goals, aims, good ideas. They're all pledges, but none of them have the force of law. And the interesting thing about contracting, of course, is that when you put things in contracts, you can start to give them the force of law. And by what I, what I mean by that is you can sort of piggyback off contractual enforcement. If you make something a contractual term, suddenly it becomes a legally enforceable term. And the way that I explain this to people is that you would never go to your financial director and say, I've done this amazing deal. I've got this fantastic price on the contract. And when your financial director turned to you and said, oh, that's amazing. Where does it say that in the contract? You would say, well, I didn't put it in the contract. It's just a gentleman's agreement. But of course, we'll definitely get that price. And that's how I look at climate contracting. If you have set a net zero target, where is it in your contracts? Because that's where it's going to be delivered. And if it's not in your contracts, how are you planning on delivering it? That's a really interesting point, particularly from a Saudi perspective, because it's an axiom of Sharia law that the contract is the law of the parties. It's, it's one of the first principles that people who come to the jurisdiction learn. So there's huge freedom of contracts in, in the country in that respect and great liberty, I think, to set goals and KPIs within a contract, noting, of course, the other axioms of Sharia law. Achieving that is a different matter, though. And I, I think what the Chancery Lane Project does, to my mind, is offer a platform for lawyers to collaborate in terms of advancing the kind of clauses that you're talking about. So the clients have had an idea. They've had a concept, a commitment, a science-based target. This gives them a toolkit whereby they can embed 
um, what they've decided they want to do in the contract. Can you tell us a little bit more about how the Chancery Lane project works and how it started and what exactly you do? Uh, absolutely. So I think that you're absolutely right when you talk about lawyers coming together and collaborating. And I think that this is particularly needful in the climate space because we don't have that regulation. The Paris Agreement was signed in 2015, but there is no um, no country that I'm aware of that has mandated the Paris Agreement in its legislation. And by that, I mean saying to private companies, you will m- hit net zero by um, the date stated in the Paris Agreement. Um, that's what I mean when I say no country has mandated it. So in absence of that, what do we do? Well, we can write contract clauses. But of course, these contract clauses that we are writing and that the Chancery Lane Project publishes are running quite far ahead of where the legislation is sitting and very far ahead of where case law is sitting if you're in a common law jurisdiction. And that throws up lots of interesting questions. Well, what should my clauses look like? Because what I cannot do is look at the legislation and transpose that into a contract clause, which is what lawyers are are, are familiar with doing in most cases. And that, I think, set up the ethos behind the Chancery Lane project going to have to ask lawyers to really work together on this. We're going to have to ask them to be really imaginative, to make that easy, to make that enjoyable. And I think the other thing was also to give lawyers a sense of confidence. And we, what I mean by that is we had a lot of people who came to us in the beginning who said, I'm not an environmental lawyer, what can I contribute? And our answer was always, that's amazing. Environmental lawyers are brilliant, but we don't just need environmental lawyers in order to fix climate crisis, because actually the clauses that are going to help us get there, there will be some environmental elements, but they're going to be the clauses that sit in merger and acquisition contracts. They're going to be the clauses that sit in shareholder agreements. They're going to be supply chain contracts. It's all of the contracting because climate change is such a pervasive, such a systemic problem. In order for us to have a fix, we need to have a pervasive and systemic fix. So that means if you are a mergers and acquisitions expert, we need you. We need you to take your knowledge of mergers and acquisitions law. We need to take your knowledge of mergers and acquisitions um, market practice and business risks and fold those into the drafting, the climate crisis drafting. So originally we started with these hackathons, where we called it, it was a term that we took from um, the technology sphere. Um, And we would invite lawyers to come together. Originally, uh, in November 2019, we invited lawyers to come together in an actual physical room, and then COVID happened and and everything else we've done after that has been online. Um, But to bring lawyers together to talk through what is it that we need what might it look like how would that drafting work and then because we are lawyers we took the drafting that was the outputs of those hackathons those meetings and we sent them off to other lawyers and said right red put your red pen through this peer review this this is a clause that somebody has written it's intended to do this does it do it how would you make it better and only after the peer review process did we start publishing And that was really important to us because it is critical for lawyers to be able to trust the material that they're using. And we felt particularly in this space where at the point at which we started doing this, there were no experts in climate contracting. This is completely fresh ground. We were building a group of experts as we went. So being able to say, well, this has been peer reviewed. 
it will no doubt get better. You will no doubt have to adapt and amend it as you would any legal precedent. But at this point in time, this is the best that can be achieved by the, the brightest legal minds. Now let's make it better. And I think that's where the next really interesting part of our work comes. And that's where my part of our my part really comes in to play here, because we've moved on. We now have over 138 clauses where there's some fantastic transpositions um, uh, work going on. And I know there's a really um, amazing Middle Eastern group that are working on taking the clauses that we've written and transposing them into um, the laws of their country, the, the language of their country, the particular con, you know, sectoral conditions in their country, and that sort of thing. But we have 138 clauses now. They will remove no carbon. They will help the climate crisis not at all if they sit on a website and are never used. They only become valuable at the point that they go into contracts. And that is where my job comes in. What you were saying about being pervasive, I think, really chimes here. I mean, we're, we're involved with, with some of that transpossession exercise here in the Middle East. And it seems to me that, as you say quite rightly, this is not an environmental law issue. This is a pervasive topic that is going to hit every corporate. And it's going to manifest itself particularly, I think, in the M&A sphere and also in terms of um, governance. And there's a lot of legislation directives being promoted by the European Union, which are going to bite very, very, very hard and have a cascading effect into the region where we operate. And people are going to have to get used to stepping back and considering, well, okay, we have to report on our net zero footprint, um, our carbon footprint. How do we cascade that into our supply chain? And I know that a lot of the clauses that you've developed are very, very much targeted at practical, implementable, actionable measures that you can take within the supply chain. It's not a fluffy exercise, this. It's it's very, very, very hard law and very, very hardwired. And I think the range of clauses that you've developed is pretty phenomenal. So, but I mean, I, I think that the, the next question I had in my mind, you, you've answered it in, in the sense is, what sort of contracts does this apply to? I think it applies across the board. I mean, I think as lawyers, we have an obligation and a duty to actually consider um, any agreement that, that, that um, crosses our desk from a net zero um, carbon perspective. I mean, I think to do otherwise um, trends into negligence because people are going to be asked these questions, particularly the case, I think, where you're in, entering into long-term service contracts. You know, in the PPP market, it's not unusual to see contracts being entered into for 25, 30 years they're entered into now, we know that the climate situation is accelerating, it's getting worse. The climate crisis is um, profoundly affecting most people on the planet, I and mean, you can't escape the news of that. So I suppose my follow-up is, how does this all work with the science of climate change? How do these two notions dovetail with each other? You're contracting and, and, and science. Yes, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think I'd like to sort of approach this almost slightly in two parts, because I think there are two parts to this in terms of our duty as lawyers. There's the science of climate change in terms of meeting your net zero goals. And of course, the point of meeting those goals is that we continue to enjoy a livable planet. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And if you look at the IPCC reports, um, which I understand some people consider those to be at the conservative end of the spectrum of where the planet will end up if we don't hit those targets, 
those are absolutely chilling, absolutely chilling. And, and I think they go well beyond how much money is going to be wiped off the economy, which will be staggering amounts. And they go into, are we able to survive as a species going forward? Um, and so really, it's about taking that science and taking those targets and saying, what do I need to do as a company in order to align myself with a 1.5 degree or less future? What is the timescale upon which I need to achieve that? And then you start to say, well, now, how do I put that into my contracts? And I think contracting is a particularly interesting thing here, which you have um, touched on with your PPP example. Um, but I think it, it, it goes much, much further than that i would say the the science is saying that we need to have cut emissions by 42 percent i believe by 2030 in order to meet the 1.5 degrees by 2050 uh, the science is also saying there's a 66 percent chance that we're going to hit a 1.5 degree rise by um, i think 2027 at this point there was a reuters article about that um, a couple of months ago because of the el nino effect but what this is really says to me is, as lawyers, we are constantly looking to the future because we are signing contracts today, which may be 30 years, but they may be five years, they may be seven years and things like that. Every time you sign a contract and you have not put climate clauses into that contract, you have locked off your ability to get into the carbon on that contract without renegotiation, which, let's face it, almost never happens because it's the biggest pain in the world, um, until that contract expires. And if you have signed a contract today, which is seven years long, then you have locked off your ability to do a 42% reduction on the carbon in that contract before the 2030 deadline. And I think that that's what I would encourage lawyers to look at in the first instances. The science has set for us a very clear timetable. Have we, as lawyers, looked at that timetable in the context of the contracts that we are signing today? Because we know, as lawyers, the point of signing a contract is you don't get back into the terms of the contract. So I think that's the first thing I would say um, to, to lawyers out there. Every contract on your desk right now, which is currently unsigned, is an opportunity to align with the timetable set out for us very clearly by the science. The second it is signed, that opportunity is gone. And I think that, that that lends itself to a more nuanced discussion about carbon mapping the contracts on your desk as a, as a solicitor, as, as a lawyer, you know, if the contract that you are signing tomorrow has a negligible amount of carbon emissions in it, that's okay. If the contract that you're signing tomorrow represents 30% of the emissions for your business for the next seven years and you haven't done any climate decarbonisation work in it, then you're going to be in trouble. And I would like people to look at that because I think that there's a real disconnect at the moment between the climate targets that have been set by boards, which are put on people's websites, and the work being done by lawyers to help meet those targets, or in some cases, actively work against those targets because you are shutting off opportunities to reduce carbon in line with the timescale. I think that's a really important thing that we don't talk about enough as lawyers. I think that goes right up into boards as well. I mean, how many board meetings have we got left between now and 2030? That's a really, really interesting, compelling point, actually. I mean, every, as you say, every contract's an opportunity to address some element of the net zero issue. But I suppose leading into that, I think a lot of people, particularly with the COP28 coming up in, in Dubai later this year, are making noises about ESG 
But one of the things that I think we need to do here in our region better is move from thought leadership to practical implementation. I know that you guys work very, very closely with lawyers for net zero. And it seems to me that the real impetus for adopting climate contracting and making it a pervasive, mainstreamed part of people's job in the ordinary course lies with in-house legal teams. But you know, can you give us any insights in terms of how they can move from a kind of thought leadership, you know, nice to have kind of position to actually mandating that people on their panel engage with Chancery Lane and get on with things? Oh, well, I think that's a really important question. And I think firstly, it's got to be a piece around education. I think our education as lawyers, previously, I think as lawyers, we've sort of thought um, SBTI, that's climate, climate's environmental. I'm not an environmental lawyer. I don't need to worry about that. That's not part of my job. And I think that we need to radically shift that. I think part of the reason we need to radically shift it, if you're not convinced um, by the idea that we as a species need to hit net zero and that corporates have a huge role, an oversized role to play in that, if that argument does not convince you, then I would say start by looking at the climate risk. Because I think that where I I feel lawyers are a particular danger in terms of negligence and, and things like that, is that we have a duty to advise. In, in the UK, there is a professional conduct regulations. We have a duty to advise clients to the best of our ability. I'm sure that many jurisdictions have a very, very similar jurisdiction a similar duty for their solicitors this is a, a quite a common thing if you are so ignorant of climate science and climate knowledge that you are unable to properly advise on the climate risk for example you're doing a mergers and acquisitions you're doing a merger and acquisition with a hotel chain have you mapped where that um, hotel chain has its hotels have you mapped whether those hotels will be underwater in the next 10 to 15 years because of the rise of the seas due to the melting of the glaciers, due to climate change and the warming of the planet. That, to me, is a fundamental risk, which some lawyer somewhere should be saying, has somebody done this risk analysis work? Is there a caveat for that? Is there a warranty covering that? Is there some insurance covering that? Or do people even know that that's happening. You know, taking a supply chain contract context, you know, we have all seen how um, the impacts of climate change, increased extreme weather events have impacted supply chains. If you are doing a supply chain contract, do you know the risks of supply chain collapse relating to climate? Is that not something as lawyers that we should know and we should be folding into our legal advisor standard? So I think the first thing is, this is a really big piece of upskilling and education. And we need to dislodge the idea that this is not for us. This is just the pur purview of environmental lawyers, because even aside from I have a client who wants to hit net zero, climate risk is something which should be looked at in every single contract now, in my view. I mean, it's it's, it's interesting. We, 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 we did another in, the, in this series of podcasts with an ESG advisory house in um in Dubai, and they were saying very, very similar things in terms of the diligence that they're applying to their clients. There's two sides of it. There's a kind of contractual side. And then, as you say, there's a practical, in-your-face risk side. And I would say that the particular drivers where we're sitting here in, in, in the Middle East is a lot of 
technical infrastructure is built to a, a certain temperature tolerance, typically five degrees centigrade, because that's that's historically been you know the high end of, of temperatures. We're now regularly hitting 50 in the region and parts of the region um, even more. And if if you're embarking on any kind of infrastructure deal here, whether it's a power station or a data center or transport system or storage, you need to make sure that you know what your infrastructure does is protect you against that eventuality. And also at the same time, I would suggest have more than an eye on where the source of cooling is going to come from um, that. But we're in a kind of transition as well, which I, I think is a, a particular point of sensitivity for this region. So, I mean, I, I think the science is clear. What you're doing is, is clear. Companies listening to this in a region who want to start embodying some of this in their contracts, what would you suggest would be a kind of roadmap, a runway, um, a toolkit for, for, for them to start with? Because it can't be a kind of big bang. I mean, I think we are, yeah. as you say, in a kind of process of education. Here. I think you're right. And I think that one of the things that I think is so lovely about our clauses is that there's a real um, sort of ladder of progress through them that we have some clauses that are very what i would call light green they won't take any carbon out but they will start getting people accustomed to the idea that this is something that you should be seeing in contracts now and i think that actually there is a piece of work to be done around socializing people getting people with comfortable with the idea of putting this sort of language in our contracts and that shouldn't be unfamiliar we got very very comfortable very, very quickly with putting language around pandemic risks in our contracts when pandemic risks started to arise. So I think it's just similar to that, but we need to start somewhere. So we have a, a recitals clause. Um, it's not a legal obligation. All it does is say, we acknowledge the Paris Agreement. Party A has set a carbon target of X. Party B has set a net zero target of Y. And we're just going to put it in the recitals as part of the background the um, contract, but it's not an operative clause. It doesn't really do anything. And that's a light green clause. But it's it's a good way to start a conversation because actually I think that how you progress starts much earlier than the contracting process, particularly in supply chains. So I would say right now, people, whether that's lawyers or procurement teams, should be getting subcontractors into a room as stakeholders and saying, right, well, look, this is our net zero target. How would this affect your contracts? How would you propose? What suggestions have you got for how we might meet it? Because you're the ones delivering the work, particularly if you're a business which is heavily in, uh, your, your emissions are heavily in the scope three space. Then when you've had that conversation, then you can move, what should our tender process look like? What due diligence questions should we be asking so that by when we put these clauses into our contracts, we know we've got suppliers who understand it and can deliver it? Because it's not just about putting a clause in a contract and crossing your fingers. You would never do that with a delivery scope. You know, you would do a proper due diligence to see is this a supplier who can deliver on the delivery scope? It's exactly the same for climate and carbon. So then once you've gone through a good tender process, then you can start putting clauses into a contract and you can start light green, as I've said. Then maybe you want to move into something around reporting. So shelving the idea of a decarbonisation commitment in your contract, just starting with a reporting commitment. How, when do you, should you your supplier be reporting to you? What should they be reporting on? That sort of thing. 
then you can move into a decarbonisation space or perhaps a circular economy space and saying, okay, well, now that we've got you reporting on the next contract you sign with us, we're going to set a carbon target for the contract. Um, Obviously, you're reporting, so we're going to know if you've met that carbon target or not. Um, Maybe you don't meet it. Okay, well, now we're going to put some incentive regimes in to make sure that you meet that carbon target. And we can reduce that carbon target every year over the life of the contract, hopefully in line with the science, of course. Um, But, you know, you can say, okay, well, you're not meeting the carbon target. Now, that is a legal obligation. That's part of your duties under the contract. So you need to meet that carbon target. That's as important as delivering the vehicles on time. You haven't met it. So what do we do now? And I think there's a space here where you can really flex it for your industry. So if you're in a higher margin industry, you might say, okay, we use service credits or we will use um, liquidated damages and we'll spend those liquidated damages on buying carbon offsets to the value of the carbon that you missed the carbon target by. Or you could say um, this is an industry where uh, it liquidated damages service credits is is not going to work so instead we are going to set a carbon target if you, you don't meet the carbon target that's a real shame but if you beat the carbon target we will give you an uplift on your price i think there's an awful lot you can do here to set up a regime and to move from in education and engagement due diligence, starting to put clauses in like a recitals clause to bring the idea in, moving then into reporting and then moving into decarbonisation. There's a, there's a, a kind of a clear journey, I think, that people can go on in their contracting. It's definitely a surmountable challenge, isn't it? And I, I suppose what I'm reflecting on as well is with COP28 advancing towards this, I think there is going to be a bigger move in this direction driven in part by reporting requirements, as you say, and there's been some interesting stuff happening with financial reporting standards. But I also think there's a big sustainable stock exchanges movement, which is gaining some traction. So each corporate, even if they're not listed, they will have corporates who are listed as customers. They're going to have to start applying their minds to this. It is going to be something that's manifesting itself in any region on, on, on the planet in which you're operating. So I think it's very, very helpful to have had you, you articulate you know, what, what the kind of baby steps are and how you can make this a win-win situation for the people involved. But as you say, quite rightly, I think the first step is some education. Just, just turning to COP28 as, as we wrap up, what are your aspirations for it? What would you like to see come out of it from a, a kind of Chancery Lane perspective and more generally? I would like to see a normalisation of climate contracting. Of course, I'm going to talk about climate contracting because that's the Chancery Lane Project's area of uh, expertise. And I'd like to see it become very normal. Uh, I think our ultimate goal is that these sorts of clauses become boilerplate, or as I think that we would like to say, cooler plate, um, that the idea of putting these things into your contracts are as normal as putting a price in putting a delivery schedule in, because that's how we should be treating them. And I think that's what I'd like to see coming out of COP, is that the Chancery Lane project has been going for some years now. We've got these great resources, and I'd like to see the idea of using either them or something like them. It doesn't have to be our climate clauses. It just has to be some climate clauses become uh, ubiquitous, something that we don't even comment on. There is a proliferation of initiatives out there, and, and what I struggle with quite often is you've got these kind of big building blocks of activity, you've got the financial reporting, you've got what stock exchanges are doing, you you might have government initiatives, but the glue that actually holds all this together, I think is contracting. 
because everything meaningful has to manifest in a contract at some point. And this is where you win the battle, I think. So I think you're, you're, you're dead right. I mean, I think given the scale of the crisis and the acceleration of what's going on in the climate, contracting is where the action is going to be. And let's hope that COP28 um, produces more impetus, momentum, correct messaging, um, as the UN Secretary General was saying the other day. I mean, this is a profound existential crisis and, you know, everybody needs to be engaged in this subject matter. Becky, thank you so much. I mean, I, that was a tremendous canter through what you're doing with Chancery Lane. It's immensely exciting and we're delighted to be involved with that. Obviously, if anybody's got any questions from, from watching this podcast, please reach out to, to Becky. We'll provide the details of the Chancery Lane project and Becky's contact details below. And my details also, we're engaged in the Chancery Lane project here in, in Riyadh and also colleagues in Dubai. We're hoping to do more of that regionally. But thank you so much, Becky. That was fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to COP Talks, a podcast series designed to provide you with unique insights into COP28 UAE by Altamimi and Company.